Yes, Thank you for bringing us into worship and letting our hearts be centered. Let's go to God in prayer. God, thank you for loving us so deeply and for inviting us. Um, inviting us to come to worship, inviting us to be enfleshed, for your love to be incarnate in the way we love each other. And we pray, God, that our minds and hearts will be open to your word. And I pray, God, with all my heart that these pale human words of mine will be infused by your color, your depth, the way that the very being of who you are shouts out to us and reaches out and pulls and tugs and encompasses our hearts. We give these moments to you, O oh God, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I was baptized on um, Easter morning, April 6, 1969. I, I was an infant, of course. No, I wasn't. But I have to tell you, I remember every color. I remember every scent. I remember every face, and I remember every tune that was played that day. I remember everything. I remember going down into the water with the cross on my mind, and I remember coming up out of the water, and I was surrounded by the arms and faces of Christ in that place like midwives, screaming and yelling and, and laughing with a holy kind of delight that of this new baby that was being born, and it was me. And I have to tell you that I never, ever have felt such a profound sense of homecoming, such a, such a familiarity, such an embracing of, of who I had been, but also who I had become in that moment. Because in that moment, I had died that day, that tearful and fearful and shamed and lost child had died and was made new. And I was reborn with an anchor on my feet to hold me down and a whole bunch of helium balloons in each hand to lift me up and set me, set me in motion and in flight at the nearness of Jesus every time that experience came around. And also in that moment, I began to understand that my life, the questions of my life had changed that I had a new response to live into because no longer was the question in my life, am I loved? The new question in my life was, do I love Jesus? And if I do, what shall I do and how shall I live? How shall I live out that answer? You see, before Easter is a theological doctrine and before it's a day or a season, Easter is an experienced reality. Just like my experience, it's something that you smell and you feel and you touch and it burns its way into your very soul and it becomes a part of who you are. It's a part of your transformation. Easter isn't a day. Easter is a way of being. And those who follow Jesus in, at Easter and in that Easter moment of resurrection, as I experienced, we lay down our tattered and scarred skin of life on our own. 
And we begin to live in a new skin of an infant of God where we're surrendered and we're dependent and we're vulnerable. All of those things. I can remember all through my ministry, people have said to me, you need to get a thick skin. Because, you know, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but people criticize pastors. All the time. And uh, I remember fighting that. I don't want to have a thick skin. I don't want to have a thick skin. Because if you have thick skin, you have thick skin against everything. You, if you have the height of an elephant, nothing is going to pierce you, including joy, including the, the unexpected, wonderful, more wonderful things than criticism. So what I wanted to do was get a perspective instead of thick skin. In John's gospel, each of the resurrection stories accounts uh, is really tailor-made for the person receiving it. It's a visit more than a spectacle in each of these accounts. And John is very careful, if you'll notice, to uh, list who's in attendance, who, who's there. And he lists all the witnesses. And this is not such a matter of proof of the testimony as it is an explanation of why Christ showed up at that time in that particular way. Because Christ shows up to us all in different ways, tailor-made to who we are and to when and how we will receive that presence in the most uh, uh, full, in the fullness of that reception. So Jesus doesn't appear in the sky to everybody at that time, but he appears in a very intimate manner to his disciples. And there's this pastoral intimacy that's inherent in each of the Easter, each of the Easter stories. Jesus feeds his followers. He feeds them physically. He feeds them spiritually. He feeds them emotionally. They're wrecks. And he comes in into the midst of those moments. And I believe that there's a lesson here for all of us, for every single one of us, in how Christ makes himself known to us. Listen then to the scriptures, the word of the Lord. John 21. After this, Jesus appeared again to the disciples. He had already appeared to them before. This time at the Tiberias Sea, the Sea of Galilee. And this is how he did it. Simon Peter... Thomas, nicknamed Twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the brother Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Notice he lists everyone present. Thomas is present this time. Simon Peter announced, I'm going fishing. The rest of them replied, we're going with you. And they went out and got in the boat, and they caught nothing that night. When the sun came up, Jesus was standing on the beach, but they didn't recognize him. Jesus spoke to them, good morning. Did you catch anything for breakfast? And they answered, no. And he said, throw the net on the right side of the boat and see what happens. And they did what he said. And all of a sudden, there were so many fish in it, they weren't strong enough to even pull it in. Then the disciples Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the master. And when Simon Peter realized that it was the master, as Simon Peter does, he threw on some clothes. He was dressed at that time. For he was stripped for work, and he dove into the sea, and the other disciples came in by boat, for they weren't far from land. I can imagine what they thought of Peter at that time. A hundred yards or so, pulling along the net full of fish. And when they got out of the boat, they saw a fire laid. 
and fish and bread cooking on it. And Jesus said, well, bring some of the fish you just caught. Simon Peter joined them and helped pull the net to shore. 153 big fish. What a detail. And even with all those fish, the net didn't rip. And Jesus said, breakfast is ready. And not one of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew that it was the master. And Jesus then took the bread and he gave it to him and he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus had shown himself alive to the disciples since being raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, took him aside by himself, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? First time he and Simon have talked personally since Simon Peter betrayed him. Yes, master, you know that I love you. Never answers it straight out. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then he asked him a second time, well, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, master, you know I love you. And Jesus said, well, shepherd my sheep. And then he said it a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was very upset that he asked him for the third time, do you love me? So he answered, Master, you know everything. You know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. I'm telling you the very truth now. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wished. But when you get old, you'll have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. He said this to hand out the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he commanded something that was familiar to Peter. He said, follow me. I think too often we uh, are convinced ourselves that God shows up only in the glorious majesty of mystery and worship and otherness. But the Easter accounts are almost miracleless, except for the miracle. They're full of things like bread and fish and table and fellowship and charcoal fires on the beach and normal, mundane, ordinary things. Jesus shows up to be with his disciples. This is what Easter looks like. That's what John says. Sometimes life with Christ looks like the dead raised and a mountain where, where glorious things happen and, and transfiguring light and the feeding of 5,000 with last night's leftovers. But more often or not, though, it's simple. It's as simple as breakfast by the sea. And it's the mundane that's mixed in with the miracle. It's the charcoal fires and it's the unbroken nets. Those simple things. And maybe it's a pastor's rehearsed call to the communion table that she's given a thousand times before, not the burning of a bush or a thundering cloud that draws each of us into that presence with Christ. But one thing is very clear about the way Jesus operates, and this is very important for us to pay attention to. That's why part of the spiritual disciplines is so important to pay attention to. Part of the spiritual disciplines is simply paying attention because Jesus doesn't make appointments. Have you noticed that? Jesus doesn't call and get on your calendar for next Wednesday. 
Jesus doesn't call and say, I'm, he doesn't even say it like Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. No, Jesus kind of shows up. Jesus interrupts daily life. If you have eyes to see, if you pay attention. So there's no telling where or when he's going to show up next, but for some odd reason, whenever he shows up and wherever he shows up, it seems like the perfect place and the perfect time. The disciples were already confused. They were confused enough when Jesus was physically present to answer or at least to entertain all their questions on a daily basis. And now they have all the same confusion without the consistency of Jesus being actually present. They have seen him risen, but now what are they supposed to do? That's the question that they've been asking themselves. They've spent so many years seeing him every day, but now, like us, they wait for that, that unscheduled break-in of the divine. So the question becomes for us, what do you do when your future is suddenly up for grabs? What do you do when everything's different, when everything's changed, when when maybe what you were counting on being true for the rest of your life isn't true anymore. And that, no matter if it's a catastrophe or calamity, believe me, that will happen. No matter if it's a small way, your life changes from what you thought it would be. So at times like this, uh, most people feel kind of decentered, and they feel adrift and at sea when that future looks different than they had planned. And it's those who mourn the loss of a loved one and, or experience the, the pain of a failed marriage or they're, they're worked hard for financial security and it's just not there, or your emotional, your physical health is declining. All of us know this feeling very well. So what did the seven do when they experienced that feeling? Well, for one thing, they took comfort in familiar routines. And they went back to what they knew. They went fishing. They went back to because there was something that was comforting about the ordinary to them. I mean, we don't really know if they were trying to run away from their troubles by taking up their nets or were they merely responding to the practical demands of needing to make a living now that the grand the grand endeavor and enterprise that they thought they were on has been shaken and kind of dissembled. Either way, either way that you understand why they went fishing, Jesus appears right in the middle of it into their ordinary activities, and he meets them where they are. He comes to them while they're out fishing, and they're frustrated fishing. He meets them physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and he doesn't come in an idea. It's kind of like showing up to those who are starving to death and saying, I'll pray for you, and walk away eating your sandwich. He shows up to meet their every need, their deepest need. And he points the way to them to bounty and to fullness. He says it doesn't have to be empty. Uh, There's lots here for you. And it's not just about surviving your life. It's about thriving in your life. It's about having a life that you have can look at with no regrets and can lift up and look in the mirror every day and say, I gave it my best shot. And God can transform my best shot into something quite beautiful. His appearance at that time is instant of pure grace. 
with no strings attached. You notice that when he called out to them to say, and he said, you know, throw the nets on the other side, it was before anybody recognized him. So they weren't trying to earn uh, their keep by saying, oh, Lord, it's you. And now God, you know, blesses them with sheep. No, it's just a stranger that says, hey, throw, throw the net on the other side. And he had such, such a sense of authority. And they'd been all night and they said, oh, why didn't we think of that? Throw it on the other side. Right in the middle of those distractions. Right in the middle of their distractions, he appears. To make sure that they didn't miss the most important meal of the day. Who knows why he appeared. But we know that he came and he declared himself. And instead, their blessings were, became literally beyond belief. And that's why the scriptures say 153 fish. Because you have to understand, in a small fishing village, 153 fish was a long time of food. That was probably the biggest catch they ever had. These were nets that were sewn by hand. And so they couldn't really hold that many fish. And yet, the detail of the scripture, when, it, when the scripture is that detail, the scripture is saying, slow down. Read carefully. Take in the details. They're saying there's plenty. There's plenty. And you have a capacity to hold it. There's an abundance. You know, it's, and it goes past their fatigue. It goes past their sense of failure. It goes, it goes past anything that they could have done for themselves. They're listening and they're paying attention. It occurs to me sometimes, I, you know, I live in the church world, and, you know, some of you live alongside me in that as elders and deacons and people who are involved. Some of you remain at a little bit at a distance, but I do know that in our hurried world of deadlines and maybe church strategies and business and mission statements, to me, it's both, it's both refreshing and befuddling that we serve a God who sometimes just shows up just to show up without really a, a big, huge, cataclysmic reason. It's just that God seems to want to be with us. God seems to just love us and just seems to show up. Where we're Sometimes we, we live in an age where everything that have val, has value must have some clearly defined purpose. That's why when I hear somebody say, everything has a reason, I'm not sure. I don't know if that's really played out. I don't know if that can be held up, but if sometimes it's comforting to people. But sometimes there are just things that just are. And sometimes they don't have a purpose. And where we're lost sometimes without roles and responsibilities, we squeeze all we can out of our days, and we still feel inadequate at the end of the day. Too often, we put the same expectations on God. And, and we want the Holy One of Israel to fulfill a function in our lives rather than being the source of our life. We, we have God so that God can heal us and God can bind us up and God can do this and God can do that. And God, God is not a function. God is. God is. Right in the middle of our many distractions, Jesus shows up. But you have to be paying attention to notice, just as he appeared to the disciples to, like I said, to make sure they didn't miss that meal. And maybe 
Maybe because he missed them. Maybe he missed being with them. It's a maternal and a kind and, and, and unnecessary in the way that grace is. That's how grace is. It's, it's kind. It's, it's very motherly. It's unnecessary, but there it is right for us. And perhaps we ought to accept that sometimes Jesus shows up just because. And the best thing that we can do when Jesus shows up is maybe just to sit down and eat the meal that's been prepared. And trust that our questions can wait for another day. Just sit down. Just sit down and eat. And we go from the communal story of fishing and dawn and recognition and fires and meals and Jesus We go from all of that, now we go into a very private moment where Jesus pulls Peter aside. Come here. I I can't even begin to, to fathom what Peter must have felt in that moment. The last time he had spoken really to Jesus, as I said before, was when he had shouted and denied Jesus three times. Never they hadn't had a private conversation since then. How would you be feeling right now when Jesus we have something to talk about, don't we? We have some unfinished business. Think about if you had betrayed your friend or your boss or your teacher or your parents. What if they called you aside? What would you be expecting? Peter had denied Jesus publicly, shouting at the point of Jesus' greatest need that he didn't even know him. I think a less courageous leader facing someone who had betrayed them in this way might have slid past that excruciating memory and maybe went right to the heart of it. What were you thinking? What did you do that for? Why? Why Why would you betray me that way? Or we might pretend that it never happened, but kind of hold back from them for the rest of our relationship. Withhold. Okay, well, you kind of proved yourself. Now I'm not going to trust you anymore. But instead, Jesus does the most adult thing. The thing that we're challenged to do is Jesus wants to redeem this relationship. He doesn't want it to stay that way. So Jesus faces Peter, and he asks this very personal, vulnerable question. And it it couldn't have been more freighted, and it couldn't have been more simple. He just simply says to him, the only question that really matters for any of us is Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter doesn't say, I love you. He says, you know I love you. Because I think he's still wondering what what shoe is going to drop next. So what does it mean to truly love Jesus? That's the question that follows. That's the scary question. That's the question we avoid. Yes, I love you. We don't want to hear about what that means. Sometimes. It's the voices of orphans starving in slums. And it's fatherless and motherless Children in places where violence has robbed them of all hope. It's the extinction of plants and animals given for our safekeeping. And the voices of future generations where the earth is being wrecked by us. Can these be, all of these, can these be God asking this question to us? Do you love me? While these things exist, in that confession... We have to understand that what it means, I think a a better response for me 
a response that would be more true, and I hope more true for me would be not, I love you. But just like Peter, you know that I love you because honest to Pete, I would be counting in that moment that my confession is not, please don't think I love you based on my knowledge of how I love you, but based on your knowledge of me. Look deep into the deepest part of me. Don't just, don't look on the surface. Look into the deepest part of me and say to me, do I love you? And I will be so consoled by that. We don't rest in our own capacity of love, but in the grace of God whose spirit calls forth in us and sustains our faithfulness and our love. So even in our faithfulness and our love, we have to have God's help to do that. We have to rest in God's spirit that God will enable us to do that. And as each question is asked and answered, Jesus gives Peter a charge. And my friends, this is the sermon. Over and over and over again. This is what you will hear from me as I hear it from scripture without ceasing. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Here, Jesus connects Peter's love for him to his love and care for others. First John says, Jesus is blunt. There's no getting around it. You can't love God and not love other people. That's that's the blunt way of saying it. Peter is charged to live out his love for Jesus by caring for the sheep, by tending the lambs, by shepherding the sheep. So you can't, there's no longer any option as a Christian to just give voice and say, yes, I love Jesus. Jesus attaches that. Okay, if you love me, these are the things you're going to do. As followers of Jesus, we're really not given, given the option of professing our love for God without also hearing the call to love one another. And as part of the Christian community, we receive many blessings from God But these gifts are given to us so that we can bless other people. They're not given to us because we're the chosen people. In fact, so much is demanded of us, we at times would want to duck and cover from those blessings. The passage ends with the risen Christ's invitation, follow me. And much of the gospel of John is a narration of how to live out such discipleship. What does it mean? What does it entail? And it includes the pitfalls and the demands of such a path. As he lifted up his warning, Peter, life is not going to be easy for you. You know, now you're very independent, but there'll come a time when you won't have a say in your own life. And this is the call that brings John's gospel to a close. This call that is as simple as, and as life-challenging as Jesus' question to Peter had been. With, with Peter, it's so interesting to me. We return to the very beginning. Get the picture. They're out in the boat. Where does Jesus call Peter initially? Jesus is standing on the shore, a stranger. Peter is fishing, so is John and James. And, and, and Jesus says, you out there, follow me. They throw everything down, and they follow Jesus. And now they've been through all of this together, and so they come back to the beginning as though Jesus is renewing, refreshing, recovering their relationship. And Jesus says, you, you, follow me. And I am convinced that all of it, 
all of it, the love, the feeding, and this wild availability is held in this call of a lifetime, follow me. So when we say we love Jesus, when we sing that we love Jesus, when we pray to God that we we love you, you cannot say it without acting on behalf of your brothers and sisters. At least that's what Jesus says. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that not only do you call us, but you call us again and again and again to return to the foundation of love, to return to your spirit, which is love, to return to the commitment that you made to us that we might make a commitment to each other. And in all the ways we're seeking God to do that, when we give a ton of food, when we travel to far countries, when we hand out bags, when we mentor, when we teach, when we preach, when we love, when we forgive, all of these things, so that we can say, yes, I love you, Lord. You know I love you. Oh, God, we cannot do anything without you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for helping us to know that we're not alone and that we never have to lean on our own understanding, our own energy, our own sense of self. But we lean into yours, that rich, bounty, lavish, extravagant essence that is available to us so that we might give to others. We lift up this day, O God. It is the first day. For today, we will follow you. Teach us and lead us to know how. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.